All right. Do the, do this so it'll make it easier for when I let's count to like one, two, three, go. Okay. Uh, together. So they're gonna get right. it. Ready? One, one two. Right. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. And one, one two, two, three, three. <laughs> Sorry, we gotta get on the same page. All right. I, I'll do one, two, three, go, and then we'll do it. Um, okay. One, you two, do three, you do a go. sample one. one. Okay. One, two, three. One, go. Two, go. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. This week, comedian Ari Shafir comes back on the show, this time as part of my ongoing series of episodes about life-changing travel experiences. This is actually the first time I've talked to Ari remotely. Usually we talk while driving around Los Angeles or hanging out in New York, but of course COVID has made that more difficult. As usual, our conversation goes all over the place, but it focuses on Israel and our travel experiences there. I walked across Israel in the footsteps of Jesus exactly 20 years ago, making my way from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem, which was an amazing way to experience the country, though I never did write about it. As for Ari, he spent a couple years there in his late teens and early 20s, studying at a yeshiva and trying to avoid work at a kibbutz in the north of the country in what amounted to kind of a Jewish gap year. Together, Ari and I compare notes on how we were affected by our experiences in Israel, from what it was like to travel there as Americans to what it was like to travel there as young men when we were both in our own young men way fascinated by and attracted to Israeli women. We talk about the various kinds of trouble you can get into in the city of Jerusalem and what it's like to go on a pilgrimage when you aren't all that religious. We talk about how spiritual-themed travel to all parts of the world runs the risk of being a little bit superficial even as it proves to be popular with backpackers. Since this episode runs in tandem with the holidays, I have a book giveaway to promote. This isn't a targeted promotion. I just want to give some books away. More on that in a second. First, a reminder that this episode is sponsored in tandem with Tortuga's holiday sale. I've been using Tortuga travel packs since they were in their prototype phase nearly a decade ago, and I took a Tortuga set-out pack around the world last year. Tortuga packs are more or less designed for vagabonding-style journeys, and they make great holiday gifts. To take advantage of their holiday sale, just go to rolfpotscom slash Tortuga and any backpack or backpack accessory you order there will automatically qualify you for a discount at checkout. This promotion means you get 20% off on purchases of $200, 25% off on purchases of $300, and 30% off backpack products amounting to $500 or more. The sale lasts until December 21st, and if you order soon, and that is if you order by December 15th, you'll get free ground shipping and delivery before Christmas. Tortuga doesn't usually do holiday sales, so this is a great chance to save money on a great product. What's more, if you live in the U.S. and you order a pack through the rolfpotscom slash Tortuga address this year, just send me a screenshot of the order and a photo of your pack, and I'll send you a free book by one of my Deviate podcast guests. I have titles from authors like Paul Theroux and Kate Harris and Chris Gillipo. I actually have a list of more than 20 titles to choose from, including the Spanish and German and Chinese translations of Vagabonding. I also have several Lonely Planet and Traveler's Tales anthologies with my own stories in them. There's no real trick here. I'm just giving these books away more or less at my own expense. And to sweeten the deal, I'm also sending free stuff to people who buy books at their local independent bookstore this holiday season. I actually don't have anything against online retailers since I live in the country and books are hard to come by out here, but when I get the chance, I shop for books at independent bookstores, which in Wichita means Watermark Books and in Lawrence means the Raven Bookstore. 
So if you get my book Vagabonding as a gift for the travelers in your life this holiday season, please call to request a copy from your local bookstore. And when you go to pick it up, just take a picture of yourself in the store with the book as well as a picture of the receipt and email it to me at deviatedrolfbots.com. And if you live in the U.S., I'll mail you a free book written by my podcast guests or me. Again, there's no trick there. It's just something I'm doing at my own expense to help support Tortuga and independent bookstores this Christmas. If for some reason you couldn't keep up with all that information, just go to the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, and you can confirm all the details of how to get a free book from me when you order a Tortuga pack or shop at an independent bookstore this holiday season. All right, here's Ari Shafir and I talking about our travels in Israel and how the adventures we had there changed our lives. All right, so, so 20 years ago, in the year 2000, I walked across Israel, which is an experience that I never wrote about um, as a travel writer, but I have all these great notes about it, and I and I sort of it's sort of a, a super memorable and enjoyable travel experience, and it was super weird because it was the year 2000, and everybody was talking about the end of the world and stuff. And Ari, yeah. um, in a way, you're the pers- perfect person to talk about this because you have a, I mean, you spent time in Israel. Um, yeah, two years, two and a half years. No kidding. Yeah. So my 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 pilgrimage was sort of a stunt because um, I'm I'm a pretty bad Christian, but I presume that your experience in Israel was because of your Jewish upbringing, right? Yeah, I was Orthodox Jewish. Yeah, um, it was all that. I actually, well, I'll try to do this chronologically too. I went back for the first time since then, since '94. Oh wow! Um, with my, with my brother, two years ago, maybe two years ago this this winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was there as an Orthodox Jew in, in yeshiva in a seminary. Okay. Um, in a neighborhood by Bagan of, of Jerusalem. And 94, how old were you? I was 18. Okay. Yeah, what's weird is, yeah, 18 to 20, uh, came back at 20. Um, my, my high school, Jewish day school, um, that's the name of it. Um, they do the second semester of senior year as a year abroad or a semester abroad. And then I just stayed for two more years. That was more touring for the first four or six months. Okay. And then it was just like studying. But um, it's a cool fucking country. Oh, yeah. Was this your it's first so real cool. travel experience? Yeah, I guess so. My, when, so I, I met these in, in Myanmar. I met these um, Canadian girls, and they were telling me about their, they were on gap year. Right. Um, uh, and I was like, <laughs> I remember going like, uh, oh, that's so cool. Americans don't get a gap year. And they were like, "What? Are you, it's not a thing you get. You just take off. <laughs> just yeah. what you call it. It's not yeah. like it's not given to you." And then I was like talking about them. I just thought it was so cool, and I've advised everyone I know who has children that are in between high school and college, or college and, and graduate school, um, take a year off, do some living. You know, traveling for sure at eighteen, and maybe like getting a job when you're twenty-two before grad school. But like. Uh, I was like, that's so cool. I wish I could have done that. And then my friends later reminded me, like, didn't you live in a foreign country for two, from 18 to 20? Like, that was two gap years. And I was like, I just sort of don't count it. Huh. I guess it counts. Was it, was it just something that you did because that was your upbringing? Or did you have a sincere religious um, goal in being there? No, it was my upbringing. So a lot of a lot of uh, so I switched from Hebrew Academy to Jewish Day School in in eleventh grade. Uh, Jewish Day School was more like um, every type of Jew. 
Okay. Hebrew Academy was very Orthodox. Gotcha. So my uh, my community and, and my upbringing was was Orthodox, and it was just kind of like a given that you go to yeshiva. Okay. After after high school, um, for a year, and then maybe two if you really like it. And and so, what are the big Jewish categories? There's like Reform and Conservative. Like just for, for people who have no experience yeah. of Judaism, how would you put Orthodox on the spectrum of, of okay. Jewish Reform experience? Reform and Conservative. Uh, those are like the Bernie Sanders Jews. Okay. Um, or as most of us Orthodox and Hasidic would call them, uh, fake Jews. Okay. Um, All right. <laughs> we just uh, I've recounted as like, you know, racially Jewish, but. They just they don't do much. You could be religious reformed or religious conservative, like way into it. Like a conservative rabbi is, would be a religious conservative person. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly like, do you remember Christianity when 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 uh, you weren't allowed to eat meat for a month, and then um, and then Christians were like, that's kind of hard though, and they're like, Ugh, fine, how about just Fridays? Right, right. Um, yeah, so that's what conservatives and reform did. They were like, let's just do it so we can like kind of kind of play along but we're not gonna, we're not we can't commit to all this so there's a lot of like rules in the old testament so the orthodox jews are more likely to abide by all that stuff yeah 613 laws okay um not all of them are around anymore a lot a lot of them i think like 400 of them were related to the to the temple right which you can't do that stuff anymore but you know kosher the 10 commandments the first 10 you can do most of those honor your father and mother right shit like that but um yeah, it was it was just the seminary we called it yeshiva, um, that's the name of it. It, it was just a, a way to like learn about the religion. And if you were going to become a rabbi, you would definitely do that. And then, but most people did not end up becoming rabbis. Was that on your radar? Did you ever consider being a rabbi? Not really. I mean, I like half passed in my brain, but it, it wasn't really. It was just like this is fun. I'm succeeding. Right. Um, you know, my rabbis are proud of me, which was like the first time I ever succeeded before in school. Okay. I was okay. always kind of a D, a D student. Okay. Um, yeah. And so all you had to do to succeed here was just sit there with the book open. Huh. Yeah. So for the first time in my life, I was like, I, I can get attaboys from like a higher up. And you like that? Yeah, it was cool. I, instead of being a problem kid, it was like. Yeah, it was fucking cool. I, I did like it. Well, I, I want to dig into your experiences there just to c- compare them to mine because I sort of had a Christian impetus or sort of a Christian adjacent impetus for walking across Israel. Um, I grew up in a Lutheran church, which is sort of mainline. It's not really parallel to the types of Judaism because it sounds like the most Orthodox Judaism is really about this. Well, I guess maybe it's more fundamentalist, but Christian fun- fundamentalists seem a lot flakier than Orthodox Jews. I mean, um, barely. You don't have to do that much. You just have to like go to church, right? There's no real like, and like and like you know, not expose your leg if you're a woman or like. Yeah, well, in Protestantism you know. especially, um, there's this idea that once you're saved, you're saved, and you know you're sort of off the hook. Um, and, and so you, you can you can sort of speak piously, but at the end of the day, um, you know, cynical people call it fire insurance. You know, you're not going to hell. You invited Jesus into your heart, and so you can be fundamentalist. But a lot of those hardcore fundamentalists are, are closer to, like, they try to abide by certain Old Testament rules. Um, I wasn't raised in that tradition, and then I just, you know, I had not gone to church very much by the time I was in college, but I was really interested in the Christian tradition. And so, because I was a travel writer at the time, I wanted to walk across Israel sort of the same way that Jesus did from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, and um, 
and have an experience. And it was, it was this amazing experience. And so I guess I'll just tell you what happened to me. How long did it take you? Um, that's a good question. Maybe three weeks. Um, but it wasn't like, I, yeah, as, as the details come out, it was, it was the flakiest pilgrimage ever because at a certain point I started (laughs) hitchhiking. Um, because it, <laughs> it was in it, it was in May. That. Yeah, no, Jesus didn't have that option, and um, like these super cute Israeli girls picked me up. Like it's just Israel is this country where um, it just, it sort of goes has its own standards. Like you know, all young people, regardless of sex in Israel, have been trained militarily, right? So I'm sure these girls who picked me up hitchhiking, which I'll talk about in a second, could have probably killed me if they wanted to. Um, oh. Um, but then they, I think they were also there's it's a weird place to be an American. That's another thing I'm curious about your experience. Of course, I'm not Jewish, um, but uh, yeah, um, Israelis just are really curious about Americans, and we're curious about my Americanness. Um, and so I actually is your map out? Yeah, yeah. So I started in Tiberias. Did you spend any time in Tiberias? Tiberia. Yeah, I was. I lived on a keep during that first um, um, the semester with my high school. Uh, we lived for a month in a kibbutz. Um, okay. Uh, called Kibbutz Lavi. Uh, they made chairs. That was their chief export. Um, okay. And we stayed and worked on the kibbutz. And the work was really just trying to get out of work. I had like okay. three friends who actually like committed to it. Uh, and, and then the rest of us would always claim that we were sick. Or um, looking back, I, I'm, I'm assuming our school paid them to let us stay there. Okay. So- <laughs> Instead of having the everyone you know, covers your own way. So can you make chairs? I know that like Jack White of the White Stripes was an upholsterer before he was a rock star. Um, really? is, is this your Jack White parallel? If, if need be, could you no. make a chair for someone? Absolutely not. They never let me, they never trusted me to go to the chair factory. I picked <laughs> avocados. Uh, my friends work in the turkey uh, farm, um, uh, just stepping in shit all the time. Um, yeah, I just picked avocados and really just like, as long as you choose the avocado trees furthest away from the caretaker, uh, he can't see you, and then you can just sleep. Okay. Uh, avocado trees create wonderful shade for sleeping. Um, we did not know about the scorpions that were plentiful up there. Jeez. Until he, he came by. I'm like, are you fucking nuts? <laughs> There's scorpions here. And we were like, where? And he's like, There's one right there. And we're like a foot away from us. Jesus. Yeah, I didn't know that. I walked across this part of Israel and had, and, and if scorpions uh, were around, I didn't see them. Um, and unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't bite me. It's, it's really agriculture up there, right? The, that northern part of Israel is, is not like the classic desert vision of Israel like yeah, you, you might have. you can see it on the map, how green it is on the map. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's crazy. Jerusalem also in that area. But like, yeah, it's, it's like that's where all the green is. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice—I mean, there's a lot of fishing. Uh, eventually, I'm being a little chronological. Eventually, the girls who picked me up hitchhiking took me windsurfing on the Sea of Galilee. Is it called the Sea of Galilee uh-huh. and locally, or is there a different name for that? Yeah, it is. Okay. I mean, the Hebrew name for it, but yeah. Yamama, no. Well, I wanted to start in Capernaum, which is supposedly where Jesus is from. Um, and when you're in Israel, which is like the size of New Jersey, maybe a little bit smaller than the size of New Jersey, um, you realize how it's, you know, northern Israel is sort of this agricultural sort of hick part of Israel compared to the rest of Israel. Um, and so I, I was staying at a youth hostel in Tiberias, uh, and those are my earliest memories of Israel are just like hanging out in this, this youth hostel. And it was really weird. Did you meet any Jews for Jesus people there? You did? 
No, I was. Did you? I that like the first. No, proselytizing for Christianity is illegal, in, in, in uh, from what I understood, is illegal. In um, you're allowed to be there, but you can't try to convert anybody. Okay. Well, I didn't uh, like in the hostel. There was this guy named Tom, and he was American, but he'd married an Israeli Ethiopian. Um, Cushy. Yeah. And uh, but he had like pancreatitis. He was dying. Um, but he hated the hospital, and so he went to this hostel, and he was, it was just like this sick American Jewish guy in the hostel. Um, and it was, it was so weird, but I, I sort of liked him. But he was, he was a Jew for Jesus. He took me to this place called the Galilee Experience, which is like a Jews for Jesus church. Did you know these things existed? Not really. I knew the Jews for Jesus were a thing. It just seems so silly to us. We're like, just convert. What the fuck are you doing? Well, yeah, no— it was so weird. Like, here was this guy who was sort of on his deathbed who'd chosen to be in a hostel. And so every day there was a new set of backpackers going through. Um, and then he went to this Yaldi Experience church. And I thought it would be sort of cool and Jewish because if there's one thing I envied about the Jewish tradition, it seemed a little bit more stable. Like, Christians sort of change their mind about what they believe every couple of weeks. Um, and, and so it was, it was sort of like a happy, clappy American church, but with Jewish music and full of Jewish people who sort of believed that Jesus was the prophet. It was a, it was a weird thing. Um, and it, it must have been a crapshoot. If you never met any of these people, that it must have just been a, a crapshoot that I met this, this poor but guy. But I wouldn't have come across him. There's no one even in my world, especially in the yeshiva. Forget about the first—I the first, uh, mean, even the kibbutz was like an orthodox kibbutz. It just they wouldn't have been there. They could have been down the road, and we would never have known. Okay. So you're, you're sort of in your own bubble in that world. Yeah, for Okay. Sure. All right. Did you go? Did you have like days off where you could go to the Sea of Galilee or go hiking? Mm -hmm. Okay. We went there once. I thought it was really cool. That all like the windsurfing on there and, and the people hanging out. It was like a this beach, the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Um, um I assume it was like that there with you too, but like all the locals were just that was where they'd party. Yeah, and it seemed it seemed that it was a pretty chill part of Israel. You know, there's there's less of those intensities, it felt like, than in a place like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, where it's just sort of this bucolic country part of, of Israel that's sort of like maybe where Jerusalem residents go on vacation, you know, or go for yeah, hikes. Yeah, they a lot. Yeah. Um, and there's like hang gliders and parasailers and stuff like that. Did you see this up there? Damn, No. The weird thing is I, I was a sheltered 18-year-old. So when I went back now, this time, I couldn't tell how much had changed and how much I had just never been exposed to. Uh-huh. You know, like 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 oh. Tel Aviv on a, on a Saturday was like, oh, stores are open. Like a lot of it closed down, but like st some stores are open. It's a Sabbath on Saturday. Uh-huh. And I was like, I asked my brothers, like, did we not know that? And it was like, we never would have been out on a Saturday. Right, right. We, we wouldn't have known either way. So, I, I, yeah, the hang gliding and shit like that seems fun. But, like, we were visiting, like, you know, where the matriarchs were buried. That was the only, like, touring we did, shit like that. Wow. Is there is there a pilgrimage tradition in Orthodox Christianity? I mean, is, is walking in, in the wilderness a part of the spiritual tradition? Zip. Oh really? Absolutely no, no, nothing. It's like move there if you can to uh -huh. Israel, but like no, that that is completely Christian. Okay. Walking in the footsteps of anybody because we don't we don't think any men are like deified. Okay, we're not trying to copy anybody. Not even like deified. I'm trying to like Jesus like, is one thing, but even like Buddha. And if you get a, a lock of Buddha's hair, there's like a whole shrine around it. Right. We didn't have any of that stuff. So there's no there's no 
like walking tradition. There's no walk for a week uh-uh. and get closer to God type thing in, in Judaism. No, there's not. It, I'm kind of jealous of that. And also, I'm looking at this trip right now. It's like the driving directions take you around the West Bank. And okay. Then the walking yeah. directions take you directly through the West Bank. Okay. And I don't know what the map looked like back then. Definitely different than now. Well, actually, what, is, Israel has a lot of great hiking trails. Um, uh, I should have researched this to see what came of them because the, the, the hiking trails are sort of idealistic. They don't really believe in that separation between West Bank and Israel proper. And for my listeners who are not sure, West Bank is, is the Arab uh, Palestinian Authority part of, of, of that part of the world. It's technically Palestine. Um, and that, that was a concern of mine just because I'm, I'm, not Jew- I'm not usually mistaken for Jewish, although I was when I was in Israel. Um, people, yeah. uh, Israelis assumed really? I was a Jew. And in fact, oftentimes there were some certain stripes of Israelis that are like, why would you come to Israel if you're not Jewish? Which is like, well, you realize that other religions trace their history to this place as well. Um, yeah, Jerusalem split up into four districts. Yeah, of, yeah. Like the Christian quarter, the, the what is it, Armenian culture? I mean, yeah, uh, Christian, Muslim, Armenian, uh, and Jewish. Oh yeah, and Jewish. Okay, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then there's one I'm missing. What is it? <laughs> right. They run the media. What is it? I can't remember. <laughs> right, right. Um, no, it's 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 funny that I actually had. I, I've, I've run into Orthodox people in New York who are trying to convert existing Jewish people into more Jewish people. Like, like the Christian yeah. tradition has people who are just trying to convert anyone into Christianity, where it, the Jews... Yeah, so it was the first place in the world... Like, I, when I walk through New York, Orthodox Jews don't think, oh, there's a Jewish guy, let's make him more Jewish. But in Israel, that happened quite a bit, especially around Zion Square in Jerusalem. Um, the Orthodox people are like, oh... You know, they they saw me as American, but thought maybe I was Jewish. It could stand to be more Jewish. Yeah, it's probably like I could see you passing as one. You don't look Aryan or anything, right? Um, it's weird how everyone just lumps visitors into their own set of circumstances. Hmm. So, like in East Timor, I would be like, "Guess where I'm from?" They'd be like, "Australia," and I'm like, "What about my accent?" Says Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're just like, "Well, that's the only people that come here." Yeah. Uh, so it's like. They wouldn't imagine like why an American or a Canadian or anybody would go there. So I guess it's the same way in Israel where they're like, "You look sort of could be Jewish." Yeah, why? <laughs> why else would you come to their podunk part of town? And and you, they probably interact with American Jews all the time um, because mm-hmm. that so many American Jews like their first travel experience, like yours, it sounds, is going for their right of return trip or to study Hebrew or, or spend some time with, um, with family or in some sort of religious trip. So um, yeah. w- one thing about walking across northern Israel, I, I had a strategy, which you might find amusing. Um, because I knew I would be walking through a lot of Arab regions, and I'd, I'd hung out in Egypt and Jordan and other places, I really enjoyed hanging out with Arab people. Um, but also Israeli uh, Arab, I, like I had a keffiyeh, but I didn't want to wear a keffiyeh because I didn't I didn't know if maybe Israelis would think what? that would be a political statement or something. Um, and I had sort of a military looking, like a slouch hat, and I didn't want the Arabs to think I was some sort of, you know, militant Israeli or something. So I bought a cowboy hat in Tiberias, um, <laughs> hoping people would just assume I was American. And they, they usually did. Like, um, within 10 seconds, they thought, oh, well, here's an American. So, like, the, the cowboy hat was wow. my was my master tool. I think technically it was a gardening hat that I got at some sort of, you know, hardware store in Tiberias. But um, as I was walking through 
Arab versus um, Jewish parts of that part of the world, I found that I was able to be a shapeshifter, that people saw me, I guess politically, you know, Americans are really more aligned with the Jewish side of Israel than the Arab part of the Palestinian part of the world. But um, people were super friendly uh, the whole time. And um, maybe unlike you, did you meet any Arabs at all when you were there as a young man? Zero. Zero. I I mean, I mean, zero. It was just not a part of our world. It wasn't like we were sheltered. We're like, it wasn't like, fuck them. Right. It was just like, it was the same as meeting a conservative Jew. Like, they just can't serve us. Hmm. So there's there's no reason to, to get to know them. Right. Um, now, a lot of my rabbis, I'm sure, because of the political climate, if you ask them privately, they would have been like, no, fuck those Arabs. Hmm. But the reality hmm. was like, almost, I mean, I feel this is the same way with like uh, Republicans and Democrats here, where it's like almost everybody is pretty much the same. And they're just fighting over these like, small differences hmm. um and there in, in in israel palestine all the disputed territories it was mostly just people like i mean 90 something plus percent was mostly just like hey i just want to go to work right and i don't really give a shit it's just like if, as long as i can go to work none of this matters and then the few other people have machine guns had the oslo accords happened yet in 94 was had that nominal peace deal been struck when you were there no i think that was I think Clinton did that, right, with with Arafat. Yeah, yeah, that was a Clinton yeah. era thing up in Oslo. Yeah, no, I voted, I voted absentee ballot for it's the only time I voted uh, for Bill Clinton from Israel. <laughs> okay, so it would have happened, like I guess, probably after that. Well, that political climate affected things. Although I think Americans believed in that agreement more than Israelis and Palestinians. Um, really, just because one thing I like. I was comfortable around the Israelis, but they, they say that, you know, two Israelis having a friendly conversation is like four Americans having a screaming match, you know, that, that there's sort of a different, um, there's sort of a brashness to Israelis that can take Americans aback sometimes. But I found myself, Israelis were really friendly and they were really pro-American, um, but they were just sort of, one, a lot of the Israeli people I met there are like, oh, no, I don't speak Arabic. Why would I speak Arabic, you know? Um, which, which struck me as sort of strange because it feels like Arabic would be a useful language out there. Um, yeah, for sure it would be. It's like that attitude of like, why would I speak Arabic? It's like, well, then why would some, why would you learn Spanish in America? It's well, like, exactly. It's useful. Yeah. You should. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, no, it can, it can expand your world, you know, in that part of the world. And then Israelis... It's crazy how people have this attitude about language as if it's like a culture war. Like in, like in French Quebec, they're like, speak French, you motherfucker. They get angry at you for speaking English. And it's like, who cares? Well, yeah, and then Americans, you know, are, are really, you know, they think that an interest, some Americans think that an interest in a foreign language is, you know, an interest in giving away American birthright or something. It, it's really weird. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they, they think that everybody should be forced to speak English. Um, but that's one thing that surprised me is just, that I guess I'd been in the Arab world before then. Uh, and so it seems strange that they're surrounded by Arab-speaking countries and Israelis were less interested in speaking Arabic. But there's also this attitude that, well, we're stronger than Palestinians, so we don't really have to negotiate with them. Um, and then the Palestinians I met are like, oh, well, there, Israel won't always be here, right? So even though there was this peace agreement, they both sort of, I, I got this impression that both sides sort of assumed that they were going to win in the end, um, which was sort of creepy. <laughs> it was like flew in the face of the peace accords. It, it feels like that peace accord was sort of, an, a, it made Americans feel comfortable, but Palestinians and Israelis weren't terribly interested in it. Yeah, it's probably just a ceasefire, but like it wasn't like didn't solve. 
I heard a, 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 a former, so when I was already in, in LA starting comedy, but it was like a, some former um, prime minister of Israel talking about why there's never going to be peace. And he's like, every other war is fought over gold or land. Hmm. Um, and so, it's, which is just boils down to money. And so you can negotiate. You can be like, well, tell you what, we have the power militarily, so give us 90% of the gold. And then, and right. then you can keep, you know, the other 10% we'll stop fighting. But the Israelis and, and the Palestinians are just like, God told us to kill you. So there's no, <laughs> there's no negotiation. <laughs> it's like, God right. said, this is all ours. So right. until it's all ours, we, we're not allowed to like compromise. Yeah. Because you, you can't compromise on God said. And it's almost a part of the, the official vernacular. I mean, again, like at the end of the day, most people get along and have similar goals. But then you get into the, 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 the second hour of conversation and you realize that there, there is sort of this, yeah, this religious conviction on both sides that the other side is eventually going to leave. It, it, was, it was weird. Um, as, as a strange aside here, I just recurred, it occurred to me um, that I spent all this time in Arabic lands before, maybe four or five months in Egypt and Syria and Jordan and stuff before I went to Israel. Um, and that going, when I first crossed the border and was making my way towards Galilee, it was sort of like going through puberty again because women can wear bikinis on the beaches. They don't cover themselves. Um, did you, as a young man, were you into Israeli, Israeli girls or, um, yeah, dude, with the, with the Sahel shirts, the, the Israeli army shirts, yeah. they wore the green button downs with their fucking, I call them Jew globes. The, 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 the Israeli or Jewish breast is one of the best breasts in the world. <laughs> okay. And it was like, it was like pulling the shirt apart. So the buttons were like somehow like defying nature to, to stay, uh, uh, threaded to the shirt. Right. It was just like, and you see them walk into, I was 18 and you're allowed to go to bars. Right. Yeah. In the first semester, you know, and we would uh, before I got like real religious. And it was like they'd walk in there with their, with their Uzis or whatever machine gun like strapped to them, just the clip out. And you see these like super hot 19 year olds that were like way more adult than we were yeah. at 18. And, and it was just like, God, it was so fucking hot. I wonder if they I wonder if they intentionally designed them that way, and I apologize to my audience for this diversion, but this is something that really affected me sort of at a at a hormonal level is that I had not really seen the female form for five months. I'd been in in Muslim lands where the the female form is covered, right? And then yeah. it actually happened at the border post between Egypt and Israel where like these like the the girls that were running this, you know, the nineteen year olds who were running this in these w weirdly sexy military uniforms, which I just wonder if that's on purpose. Um, they were taking a long time, and it's like, and then eventually I realized they were sort of flirting with me, you know, that I was a young American guy, and they were having fun, you know, just shooting the shit with me, and that was so new. That was so new at the time, uh, and then I would go to cities like Israel, less less so in Galilee, where I started my pilgrimage. Um, but there's like a beach culture in Tel Aviv. It's like Jewish Los Angeles, and it was like when you see when you don't see the female form in your 20s for five months, and then suddenly you're on a beach with these beautiful Israeli girls. It was it was like going through puberty again. It was crippling. It was it was like <laughs> it, it was a lizard brain thing. It wasn't like oh I'm I'm gonna decide to feel desire because I'm back in the, a, a westernized world. It was just like oh my god I'm I feel yeah. like I did when I was 13. And they go for it with bikinis. It's not just like one pieces. Like they go for it and they're all playing that weird paddle ball game on the beach and you're just like Oh yeah. Remember the opening of um that Zohan movie, the Adam Sandler movie? 
I don't think I saw that. Playing. Yeah, well, he he captures it right. It's 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 a uh, welcome to the Zohan, something like that. It's this Israeli guy who moved to New York, but the beginning is on a Tel Aviv beach, and it's just like perfect. The yeah. way it portrays like everyone's so fucking hot, the men and the women, they're just like I don't know, they're in their primes. A, a twenty-year-old Israeli is just like they're crushing it. So so was so did you like? Were you allowed to ask anybody out? I'm not that I no, had any romance uh, with no, any Israeli not girls. At all. Oh really? No, okay. we would go and stare at them. We would go and like okay. look at them and stuff. But like, nah, we couldn't. We couldn't talk. The only ones we could talk to were the, were the girls from the neighboring uh, seminaries, okay. like our sister seminaries. And then we'd go on like a walk or something like that. But it was just like a real strict no making out policy. <laughs> it's like you wait till marriage and then you have sex. Okay. Bad okay. Sex. Right. Right. So that's maybe a parallel to certain fundamentalist sex in Christianity. Um, no, but I just, I just remember that, that, that I, I left Egypt, I spent like two days in Tel Aviv going through puberty again, and then I went and I started this aesthetic wow. walk, this Christian pilgrimage across, uh, across Israel. So, but that was, that was such a vivid detail because I wasn't used to feeling sort of that lizard brain level lust in the way of a 13-year-old. Um, but yeah, compared to Egypt, a beach <laughs> in Israel crazy. is just, it's, it's like getting a shot of testosterone in the manner of a 13-year-old. It was crazy. That's hilarious, especially coming from those Arab countries. I did something yeah. similar to that in um in uh, I was going to the Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival for the second time, and uh-huh. I I noticed I wasn't uh I don't know the first time I wasn't like crazy out there trying to meet people and meet girls or whatever. So I was in Ireland the day before, and I just decided like I'm not I'm gonna stop masturbating. Okay. Um, just because I'm gonna be living with four dudes, and I, it just seemed gross, and I just wanted to be more social, and I thought it might help me be more social. And yeah, like seven or eight days into that, and you're just, I, it's that same thing you were talking about, like just hormonal, huh. thirsty, whatever the term is. Um, yeah, when you're not around it, and suddenly, or like spring in New York. I don't know if you've been here for like Cleavage Day or oh, or when like the women I know start exactly like, what you're talking about. Yeah, you go to Central Park, and it's like, oh my god, I, I, this is, and mm-hmm. I, and again, I'm sorry to my listeners that we're suddenly this is dude talk, but yeah, it's like you've died and gone to heaven. That suddenly, um. A certain, <laughs> a certain aspect of the female form is avail- is visible in a way it hasn't been for months, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're coming out of hibernation. And by the way, I've talked to the women about this. They feel the same way. Everyone's just horned up. Right around April or May, everyone just gets horned up. And people are sweatier and just like that's when like that's when like bar hookups happen, where you're like you like trying waiting for the bathroom and two people come out and you're like oh you weren't even doing coke you were fucking in there <laughs> you <laughs> smell the difference between a coke thing and a fuck thing well i think this uh, again, is why the poetry the they, yeah sorry about the no but this is a thing and i think this is a part of travel i think this I, i'm just being honest about that this can be a part of travel i think especially mm-hmm. when you're younger you're you're sort of looking you're more into you, there's more longing if not actual hookups um Towards the opposite Long. sex, and and that was such a part of my experience in in Israel. Um, and then, yeah, no, you're exactly right in New York. I think I've written in my journal before that like Central Park in April is just insane because everybody's just so excited to be outside. And like, there's yeah. po- poetry traditions out of Europe that are about spring. Like, spring is a fertility festival. You know, there's a reason why the, the Easter bunny is a bunny. You know, um, uh. and not and not you know uh, this. Um, uh, famously libidinous animal uh, that this spring ritual, like uh, Christian Easter, was superimposed on the fertility fe- festivals of uh, pagan Europe. Um, 
So yeah, spring fertility is a thing. Wow, interesting. And I'm I'm sort of shifting here because um, <laughs> I could I could have a whole podcast about um, being seized by lust on the beaches of Tel Aviv, but um, uh, because I was sort of going on this in the footsteps of Christian pilgrimage, pilgrimage, I saw a lot of Christian other Christian pilgrims. Well, yeah. I saw Christian people. Did you did you run into many up in in Israel? No. Not re- so I did this time, this in in uh, I guess it was 2018, um, but it was just so sheltered, so no. But it would have been interesting to like. Were there other people on that like pilgrimage who were who were seeing the same? I don't know. What were you were you seeing spots or was it just about getting from point A to point B? Well, or I was like Jesus. You know, tied his shoe right here, so that's a big spot. Oh my God, that's all over the place. I think like Saint Saint Helena in the sixth century went and and she's like, uh, "Is this where Jesus did this?" And the people like the Palestinians that live there are like, "Yeah, whatever, I guess so." And so there's literally there's it's not quite uh, tie your shoe, but it's like, oh, this is the this is the place where Jesus went to school and this was his school book. And I mean, just you you, you have to. I'm sure that people were sort of giggling at Saint Helena when she was trying to figure out where all the Christian shrines were. Um, but I did intersect that basically there's a tour bus equivalent of what I was doing. Um, and so I sort of felt, I always felt more hardcore because I had been walking from Christian site to Christian site. And then just a bunch of fat Americans or, you know, people from Europe were at the other places. But it was so weird that there's a, a whole market that appeals to the Christian tourist market because I was out of Tiberias. I started walking along the Jordan River. I don't know if you spent much time there. Um, Zero, but... That was one of only yours. We we had we had no ties to Jordan River, in, okay. In the Jewish religion, okay, yeah. Well, dr- but I the, know you guys have it hard. Well, it's where it's where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, right? Um, but the funny thing is, is that like Helena found a site near Jericho fifteen hundred years ago, but Galilee, there's just a lot of Christians go through, and like technically, the Jordanians run that baptism site now. And so I think the Israelis, like some Israeli farmers, like 30 years ago said, well, we're on the Jordan. Yeah, maybe Jesus was baptized here. And so they actually have competing, it's like KFC franchises, they have competing places where Jesus may have been baptized on the Jordan. Um, Whoa. And I think basically that Israeli people said, yeah, we can make a buck off the Christian pilgrims. And so literally there's this place with these little, and and it's full of Americans. It was so funny. Um, there was like these British pilgrims that had come on their Christian pilgrimage and American pilgrims. And the American pilgrims were so loud and the British pilgrims were just pissed off at them, but they had like a locker room and they had a snack bar. Um, so it was sort of like the Friday night lightsification of the Christian pilgrimage where you can go, you can change in your swimming suit, you can get baptized by your, your own minister from Arkansas on the Jordan at a place where Jesus probably wasn't baptized, but the Israeli farmers who owned that had decided you could. And it was so surreal. Sure, and like then the, it becomes fact. Well, and then just it be- put up a plaque, and it's like, yep, who's well, gonna argue? Literally, I, I I copied down the plaque into my notes, oh. and and it sort of said, basically, the plaque said, well, it was around here somewhere. You know, it didn't. It, it was sort of trying to prove that the baptism was there, but it admitted that nobody really knows where it was. And so it's like, well, this is the Jordan River. Jesus was baptized on the Jordan River, so we built a facility here with a locker room and a snack bar. Um, and it was, it was the year 2000, so it was sort of like end times was on the mind of a lot of Americans, and it was packed with noisy Americans. It was so weird. It was like it was like being at a Friday night football game, but with Jesus. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. 
That's so great. They do that with comedy clubs too. The, you, when I started here, when I was just visiting from from LA, it was all these New York clubs. Like this is where Seinfeld started. And you're like, oh, cool. And then you see another club with the same sign, and you're like, well, which one was it? Yeah, and yeah. Then, and then you realize like he just started comedy in New York. He did all the clubs. That that's exactly that that almost dictates the the Christian tourism circuit in um in uh, in Israel. I went to Megiddo. Did you go to Megiddo? Uh, do you know where uh-huh. that is? It's no, um it's it's probably more meaningful to Christians than Jews because of the Book of Revelations and Armageddon. Um, Armageddon is a is a play on the word Megiddo. It's basically where the 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 end times battle is going to be. So if you if you had sort of a batshit scale of Christian pilgrimage, the craziest ones were at Megiddo because they're the ones who were really into the end times and the prophecies for the end of the world. Um, when I don't know the armies of God and the devil are going to fight and Christians are going to be you know, raptured into heaven. Do you know anything about this? No, but I just looked up the map. There's a kibbutz there, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Horses. There's a cemetery, uh, a, a national park, and a tattoo shop. Nice. Well, there's actually yeah. there's a, an archaeological site there. It's a really old city in that part of the world. Um, Megiddo. There's actually an archaeological site. But when I was there in the year 2000, when some of your hardcore Christians assumed the world was going to end. Uh, it was oh, full yeah, of it was right. full of Americans, uh, and so I think I slept in the forest near Megiddo, and so like some people from Tennessee or something were doing a play, and it's like oh well here is the um you know the um the the dragon of end times and here's you know basically these Americans were performing a skit <laughs> about how Jesus was going to come down from heaven and slaughter the unbelievers. It's so weird. Like if, if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is sort of this guy who's arguing for this very human way of being in the world. And then in then in um in the book of Revelations he's like Star Wars Jesus, you know, who's just Yeah, that's kick the ass. Jesus I want to see more of. I want to see those on necklaces. I want to see those like statues. It's like badass Jesus. Right. Warrior Jesus. <laughs> Jesus warrior princess. Well it was it was a total uh, totally a Jesus warrior princess moment. And that's it was at Megiddo actually that it was so hot. I don't know what you remember what the, the weather was like, but I just decided hot. to stop I decided I, I was going to cheat. I was going to stop walking and start hitchhiking, and that's when the Israeli girls picked me up outside of Megiddo. How long? So you went around. You went around the West Bank. Then, if you're at Megiddo, you're going. You're going the the not quite through the yeah West Bank. Yeah, and Mount Tabor is there. Yeah, so I didn't. I didn't go through the West Bank. I, I later on, I was in the West Bank. I went to Jericho at the very end of the pilgrimage, um, but that was after I stopped walking because I was hitching, and then these Israeli girls picked me up. And they were young and cute, and they're like, yeah, we're going windsurfing. And that's the opposite direction of where you're going, but you can come if you want to. And so, of course, I wanted to. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. so I, I spent the morning learning how to windsurf on the Sea of Galilee, which is just such an awesome-sounding thing to an American Christian person. Um, but then also, like, the Israelis Wait, had— you went back. you went back up to Galilee from Megiddo? Yeah, so I basically went all the way back to where I started because Damn. I was I was an American dude in my twenty who thought it was cool that these cute Israelis picked him up, and it's like why not go windsurfing, you know? So I erased all the progress I made. I slept in the forest. That's thirteen hours of walking. Yeah, it's probably Jesus. more than thirteen hours of walking because it was so hot, and I was want- like I was trying to follow the Jordan for a while. I was trying to go to the Christian sites. Um, oh yeah, and then two cute girls in a. Kia or whatever, and pretty soon I've erased all my mileage. But um, yeah, and it was such a weird windsurfing camp because 
certain factions in Lebanon had just lost. And so there's like these Lebanese proxies for Israel, like the Southern Lebanese army had been sort of fighting on Israel's behalf in Southern Lebanon for a while, but they had given up. And so the Israelis were like sheltering them. It was weird. These Israelis who aren't really interested in Arab people, but felt bad for their Arab allies in Lebanon were housing them in resorts. And so I was windsurfing on the Sea of Galilee with like 50 Arab militia guys there. You know, basically like the mafioso of Southern Lebanon were hanging out in donated swimsuits <laughs> on the Sea of Galilee. It was so it was so weird. Like one moment I was walking in the footsteps of Jesus and the next moment I was windsurfing with cute Israeli girls and hanging out with, you know, Lebanese warriors. It was so weird. <laughs> That's funny. And, and then what then what happened is that That's they, Israel, man. There's so many cultures there put together. Oh, 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 there, there are. And then, then these girls took me to Tel Aviv. Like, that's how small the country is. It's like they were just taking a day trip to go windsurfing. And so they're here like, you want to come to Tel Aviv? And it's like, yeah, I want to come to Tel Aviv. So, so then I went back to puberty. Basically, I went to puberty town um, and hung out with uh, the bikinied uh, Israelis. Um, Did you hook up at all or no? I didn't. I had, I had a weird experience. Um, I don't know. It, it's part of young manhood. It's like I wasn't really sh- – I was sort of intimidated by the Israeli girls. Um, For sure, yeah. And they were all sort of into me because I think I was I was just different. You know, I wasn't your average American Jewish guy on a homeland trip. I was just this random – I had long hair at the time. Um, I was wearing a cowboy hat. So I think they were just sort of interested in me. But I was just too intimidated. I just didn't know. So I think I slept at the house of one of them one night. But I just felt like I just it, – it didn't feel – like later I thought, should I have made a move? But, you know, I didn't. So, um, again, that longing, you know, I, I was sort of thinking it would be cool to hook up with one of the girls who put me up hitchhiking, but I was way too intimidated and it seemed sort of gross. You yeah, they would have had to make the first move for you. But the problem is those girls are such, they're so wild and like, they'd be like, no, make a move, pers- man. Do yeah. it. We're not going to yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I, 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 I slept on the floor and, and thought about it and I thought about it for weeks afterward, but I didn't make a move. It just seemed. <laughs> it, weeks it, after. Right. So great. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder. Yeah, maybe maybe the cowboy hat an American would have been exotic to them. I don't know, but I didn't. I didn't. Did you? Did you no. have a? No, you didn't have a girlfriend at all. You didn't make any no. moves. No, I try. I actually tried to lose my virginity when I was there with the high school for the first semester, and then I I just like fucked up. I didn't okay. know how to do it, and I just ended up like going down on a girl for like an hour and a half. <laughs> so, like, I had no idea how to like ch- turn it to sex. Like an American. She was like, what an, are you doing? An, no, American an American girl or? Okay. Yeah, it was okay. a girl from my school who okay. was there with me. The right. cool thing about it that I am remembering from your, from your, that we did have in common is the hitchhiking culture that was there. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, it wasn't like American hitchhikers where it's like, um, uh, whatever that movie was with the guys on the motorcycle. Oh, what Easy Rider. Like? Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was just, that's how everyone got places. That's where the soldiers got home from their assignments, where they had their weekends off. It's just everyone, you just stick your pointy finger out towards where you're going. Yeah. And people just pick you up. Yeah. I, I think I didn't realize that. And like I was hitching with my thumb, not with my finger. I was wearing a cowboy hat. Um, I had sort of long copper colored hair. And I think they're just like, whoever this guy is, sure, we'll take him. Where, where he's going and so that was that was so cool did you hitch when you were there as an 18 year old yeah a little bit we okay. just had to get to like into town so when i was on kibbutz lavi which is right right near there i just found it on the map i remember now as i see it there's a, a four-star hotel they were building the hotel when i was there okay um and i was like who would stay here but i guess people do 
But um, yeah, when you had to get into the bus station into town um, to go get a bus to somewhere else or to visit uh, my family in Perth Tikva, uh, outside Tel Aviv back then, it was it was a two hour walk. So yeah, you would just hitchhike, and someone hmm. would always come get you. Yeah. Did you feel like Tel Aviv was different than every other place in Israel? Because um, I didn't realize until I was researching this, like it's as old as Miami. It's like barely yeah, 100 it years a hundred years old. It was yeah. a swamp. That was, that was what the rabbis always told us. They were like, what, they want Tel Aviv back. Back to what? Back to, well, you couldn't even walk in there because it was a literal swamp before right. we got there. They were all so territorial over it. They're like, we built it recently. Yeah. Yeah, every other argument was like, we were here 2,000 years ago, and they're like, we were here 2,800 years ago. It was only Tel Aviv. They were like, no, no, my uncle built it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah. I, I love I, it now. I was blown away by how forward-thinking it was and how yeah. culturally like awesome it was. The, 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 it, it's broken down between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and they're so close to each other. But hmm. I mean, it's an hour bus ride. Yeah. But like, Tel Aviv is like, the, the gay pride parade in the two cities like sums it up where in Tel Aviv it's such a like modern place and, and, and gay pride is a, a, a fun time and everyone gets involved and it's just like pretty awesome. Um, just a, a festive thing. And then in Jerusalem, 45 minutes away, which is a very religious town, um, it, it's an act of defiance. Hmm. Um, and in fact, like some rabbis stabbed a bunch of people at, at one of the gay pride parades, went to jail, got out uh, years later, and went immediately to the first gay pride parade and started stabbing again. Jesus. Like, yeah, like he learned nothing. So it's, it's, they're so wildly different. And they have crazy nightclubs in Tel Aviv and shit that I just found out two years ago that I had no idea was there back when I was in yeshiva. Oh, yeah. No, it's funny, going back to the, the puberty analogy, that I felt I was just gripped by hormones constantly in Tel Aviv. I couldn't walk 10 blocks without feeling like I was 13 years old again. That didn't happen at all in Jerusalem. It's just a different vibe entirely. I liked both places, yeah. but Tel Aviv is like this brand new places. It has a beach culture. It has club culture. Um, club culture, for sure. It's almost like people walk differently, you know. Better restaurants. It's just like it's just like uh, just a more modern... It's just a more modern thing. When you come up the hill, so if you take that bus or drive from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, um, it gets real windy as you start going up the mountains because Jerusalem's up in the mountains. Um, it snows in Jerusalem every couple of years. It'll never snow in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Um, it snowed that year. It snowed in the year 2000. Not when I was oh, there, really? but shortly before right. I was there. End of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but right when you get, when the winding stops and you just, you see this like, stone city and you go into it it looks like i mean a, a production of fiddler on the roof it's just everyone mm. is in that old garb the hasidic garb and it's just like everyone there is in it uh and even the ones that aren't hasidic or like have yarmulkes on it's just very religious and did you, you escape and the non-religious people there uh my nephew or not my nephew my cousin once removed he's he's there and not religious he's one of the few non-religious in my family and, and it's like he's just like it's a weird place to be as a not religious person yeah well i was when i went to jerusalem and i loved jerusalem um for years afterwards i would tell people it was like my one of my favorite cities in the world and they thought like i was a weird religious person they were trying to figure out what what religion i was trying to advocate for but i just i just loved the energy of the city even though i wasn't maybe perhaps because i wasn't gripped by this puberty thing i had in tel aviv um 
but it's it's this amazing place, you know, where you're sort of walking through history. Um, and but I was staying in hostels. I stayed in a place yeah. called the Al Arab Hostel and another place called the Tabasco Hostel. And it was again, it was the year 2000, so that like there was a lot of crazy people in the city. But the hostels were were full of like the cynical young hipster backpackers. Um, and it's almost as if they were they were collecting. Do you know what Ju- Jerusalem syndrome is? I've heard of it. Mark Maron wrote a book called Jerusalem Syndrome. What is it? That you it think is. Jesus? Well, there's also a, well, yeah. Well, you think you're Jesus or you're Moses or maybe you're Muhammad or something. Um, but I know that in Paris, there's Paris syndrome, where like Japanese tourists especially will go there, and their expectations for the city are so high that when they go to Paris and they smell dog pee or see something that that is not as beautiful as they thought it was, they have sort of a nervous breakdown. Well, Jerusalem syndrome, because it's it's a city that people have dreamed of in religious terms, that you know the big three great monotheistic religions, they will go to um, they'll go to Jerusalem, and they'll start to feel anxiety you know, again for the same reasons. It's, it's a little bit too modern for them. It doesn't match up to their biblical visions. And so, literally, at the time I was there, I, I was there in 2000, the year before, in 99, like. 50 different Christian pilgrims have been hospitalized for having Jerusalem syndrome, where basically you start preaching, you, you, you burn your clothes, you, have, you do a ritual bath. Um, there's, there's a famous story from the time where like the first time the Israeli and the Palestinian police cooperated on something is that they found a guy wandering the streets. The Palestinian police are like, we found this guy wandering the streets and he's shouting about Jesus. And the Israeli police are like, oh yeah, what's he wearing? He's like, animal skins? And it's like, oh, he's a John the Baptist. Um, just just bring him to our side. <laughs> and so people think they're either John the Baptist or they think that they're, maybe they don't think that they're Jesus or Muhammad. They don't think they're the highest prophet. Um, but people go they think and- they're they, the, a Messiah. I, I've heard that. Where it's like, yeah. I guess it's that. They, they need to fill in the religion. So they just go like, I, I, they're overcome with it. And they're just like, I think I'm this. Yeah, there, there's so there's such strong expectations, and there's so many people there with their sort of their expectations of faith, and people just lose it there. And it's it's actually they've said that maybe the biblical prophets were sort of mentally ill themselves, but people who maybe aren't the most stable to begin with will go there, and then suddenly they'll sell all of their clothes and they'll walk through the streets, you know, preaching sermons, and it's just a weird thing. And at the time, I'd be curious to know if this still happens, but at the time. Just the local police were used to it, you know, that, that they, they sort of have an eye out for that. And in the hostels, you know, I was in these hostels, it was like eight or 16 shekels a night. It was like four or two dollars to sleep in a bunk room. Um, and it was just full of hist- hipsters who were hoping to find somebody with Jerusalem syndrome. It's like just a, a bunch of young people who were looking for weird stuff in the city. So there's all these layers of Jerusalem. And I think all of the hostels were in the Muslim quarter. Did, did you spend – oh, you said you didn't go to the Muslim quarter until you were much older, right? No, I never went to the Muslim area until until this last time. I thought it was interesting, and I never went to the Christian area of Jerusalem until this time. And I actually – it was it was interesting to see because, like, all the rituals are – they're all different. But they're if you step back from them, they're all almost exactly the same. Hmm. Like, like, you know, G- Christians do a cross, you know, right, right. Um, um, from their forehead to I don't know where sternum. Um, Jews put on, you know, like wrap their arms in in a fucking weird like leather, or or maybe like go down to the ground or like bow, and it's just like they're all just doing things with their bodies in order to give it up for their own God. 
and like if you just came to this earth you'd be like i think they're all part of the same thing i yeah i wouldn't doubt that and i mean did you ever do that did you go is it the way is it called the wailing wall in, wall? yeah in, yeah yeah okay uh, did you did you the go there wall, the wailing wall yeah. Oh, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's one day a year that comm- the holiday that commemorates when the when the when the Jews were given the Torah by mm-hmm. God, and so a great thing to do is you, you learn Torah all night long um, until s- shortly before the sun comes up, and then um, let's say sunrise is six o'clock at like four thirty, everyone leaves the seminary, leaves the um, the Beit Medrash, and and you just start like marching and and singing and dancing. Uh, across the city like for an hour to the western wall and then you can pray uh the very first moment you're allowed to pray hmm. and it's just like this cathartic like <laughs> when you feel like you're stepping up on on like steps to heaven did, it did was it, great was it a religious experience for you yeah i mean you couldn't not everyone was so happy and, and dancing and singing all these prayers and, and like the stones I'm a, I think I'm an animist if I had to name a religion that I, that I am. Mm-hmm. So I feel some like weird connection uh, through time to like uh, animate objects um, or inanimate objects, anything like a stone. Like, like when you're walking in the old city of Jerusalem, like it's not like Jesus used to live here. Um, right. Like you would get in New York, you get like, oh, some great you know, thinker used to live here. It's like, no, no, Jesus walked on this. These aren't, these haven't been repaved. Like, he probably leaned and, and touched the exact stone I'm touching. Yeah. You know, it, it's just like this direct connection to a different time period. So like whenever the temple was built, those stones, they didn't, they didn't get replaced. They're still there. So the, the makers yeah. of the great temple were like built this so that we 2000 years later could, or 3000, whatever it was, could walk in there like reveling in, in, in the glory of God. I don't know. Yeah. It just kind of overtakes you. Well, I I actually went there. Um, you, they they give out those hats. Are they still called yarmulkes, or is there a better word for those? Yarmulke, yeah, yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. So they give you a paper yarmulke, and you can go and you you write a prayer on a piece of paper, and you put it in the wall. I, I did that. That was oh, that yeah. was really cool. Um, it is cool. Right? It's like it's the ultimate wishing well. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and it's just and and it's massive, and there's all these people there, and everybody's happy. And of course, on the top of that wall is is the Al Aska Mosque, right? The Dome of the Rock, mm-hmm. the, the Muslim holy place. And so, you know, you were talking about somebody from outer space coming in and being able to tell the difference. Maybe not. I mean, people are dressed a little bit differently. Um, yeah, you'd be like, some people can get in, and some people can't. I guess so. The ones who can't get in are on the outside, praying to the wall mm. of the place. But it's like not that. It's just like I, I don't know. I don't know. When you go to Egypt and they tell you how those like power in the tombs, and that's why oh. they all want to be buried there because it's like natural earthly power. Right. If you believe in any sort of thing like that, which I guess it's similar region anyway, then they're like, it, it can't be a coincidence that two different religions have their like, not their number one home base, but a top five, um, like 20 feet apart. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And the Oxen Marks is also the spot where Jesus went to heaven, right? Well, I think in the, the Muslim, the in the Muslim, no, actually, that's where Muhammad went to heaven. Um, oh. I'm not sure what the Christian, like, I'm a Protestant, so we're less, we, we learned less about what exactly Jesus did. You know, it's, it's more of a, more of a conceptual religion than, than Catholicism, which, which is much more concerned with saints and, and literal sites from the Bible and stuff. Although you were talking oh. about the, the Seinfeld tour of New York, there's a Christian equivalent of that. It's called the Stations of the Cross. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you saw this when you're in Jerusalem, but it's it, it can become almost comical because what Christian pilgrims will do is they'll come and they want to... The state, basically, when, when Jesus was crucified, he was made to carry his cross through Jerusalem, and then they hung, then they put up the cross and they hung him on it, right? And so it's this idea that you, you're doing the so same... so rude. It, it is rude. Actually, there's some hardcore parts of the gospel there that, like, they're... Um, the people... I guess it was the Romans who were torturing Jesus before they crucified him. They're like, prophesy, Jesus, who hit you? And then they'd punch him. I mean, it's just, it's just smack talk, right? And, and so, like, if you're a prophet, who, who just punched you? Um, and that, it, that's sort of, that's totally throwing shade. Um, but um, because Jesus <laughs> famously... This bitch. Right? No, it's, it's, I remember reading that in the Bible thinking, Jesus Christ, these guys remind me of guys I went to high school with. Um, <laughs> Why you're hitting yourself, Jesus? Why you're hitting yourself? <laughs> right, totally a locker room moment in the gospel. Um, but yeah, Jesus was made to carry his cross through Jerusalem, and so what Christian pilgrims will do is that they will also carry a literal cross. But the, and so there's a rental market. I'm not making this up. You can rent a cross in Jerusalem wow. that you can carry on the Via Dolorosa, which is the way of the cross. And so there's little literal signs in this part. I don't know if it's the Christian quarter or not. I've forgotten. But there's there's um. Signs that say, please leave your cross outside. Literally, the sign says, please leave your cross outside because, you know, pilgrims will not, <laughs> they're not sure what to do with their cross while they go in for a, a cappuccino or whatever. Um, wow. But I forget how many stations of the cross there are, like 11 or something. But because of the Seinfeld factor, you know, because there's all these pilgrims carrying crosses and some of the crosses have wheels mounted on them so they're easier to carry. Like if you're elderly, you can get a cross with training wheels. <laughs> <laughs> and keep an eye out for it if you go back. It's, it's, it was so bizarre. But like right. the first station of the cross, it's, it's like built on these what are, I think like Jesus fell, by tradition he fell here and then he talked to a certain disciple here and he was tortured in this place. And so these are the stations of the cross. But there's a tourist industry that has been built around the Stations of the Cross. So literally, I wrote this in my notes because I thought I was going to write a story about it. Like at the second Station of the Cross, you can buy um, a, a fun flash camera, right? At the third Station of the Cross, there's a you can buy an, an artichoke pizza. Um, there's a fourth Station souvenir shop at the fourth Station. There's also a seventh Station souvenir station at the seventh Station. There's a Holy Rock Cafe at the sixth Station. You can buy a crown of thorns for three dollars at the at the fifth station, and so it just it, it struck me as so absurd that there is this place where people go crazy with religion. There's places where Jewish people will just be overcome with joy walking to the Western Wall, but then there's also mm-hmm. this weird kitsch market that springs up on the way of the cross, where literally people are carrying their rental cross and they can buy a fun flash camera and take a picture of themselves while they're doing so. Yeah, well, it's like the you know, the book you wrote, souvenir. Yeah, where it's like these 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 markets have sprung up around the main market. Uh, in, in less less possibly offensive terms, it's like um, Franklin Barbecue in Austin um, became like <laughs> the number one barbecue spot in town. So now, because of lines of three hours, some guy who has fifteen chairs is like, I'll go rent chairs to these people, or someone else is like, I'll go sell beers to people in line, or umbrellas when it rains, and like they don't have any association with Franklin, but like. They could make money off the, you know. So when I went there this time and my brother and I were like, let's go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm. Let's see some of this Christian stuff. And I'm walking around and it's gorgeous. So you went inside? Um, I went inside, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and walking around, actually walking around and then 
uh, he was waiting in line. He had gone the day before he, to see like the tomb, and so it was like a long line. I was like, he's like, go walk, and so I just walked around and looked at everything, and then I turned a corner and I just saw um, a comedian, Tom Rhodes, who was just it, there, and I was like, Tom Rhodes, <laughs> yeah, the in church the Church of the Holy, of the Holy Sepulchre. Sepulchre. <laughs> Wow, yeah. and he was like, Ari, we're like, what the, f- what, what are you doing here? <laughs> what an odd place. We don't even run each other in L.A. when he lives there. Um, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it was it was great. But uh and then we just all waited in line together. He was there with his mom, I was there with my brother, and we all waited in line and saw the the priest doing the thing with the with the smoke coming out of the, the things on the end of the uh, the chain. Mm-hmm. These weird box on the end of a chain. But yeah. um my buddy Steve Simone is a is a comedian. He's, he's very Christian, very religious. And I was like, you know, I'll get him a souvenir. Um and not just like a keychain, which is like like you know, like you wrote, could be made in Indonesia. Right, like, yeah. It's got to be something related to here. So a lot of times I'll get people. I think we talked about this too. I'll get them a rock or so, something oh, specific yeah. from there. Yeah, you know, a rock from outside the the, the pyramids of Giza. It's just more, more meaningful. You know, something's been staring at these these built these buildings for three thousand years is more meaningful than a than a keychain. Yeah. Um. So I was like, I'll get him something, and then Tom Rhodes was like, Why don't you get him a cross? There's this uh rock that's in here where Jesus got. When he got taken down off the cross, they 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 washed his body, and he showed me where it was in the church of the Holy Sepulchre near the entrance, and there's all these old women crying and like they're wiping it down, um, it's just this flat rock the size of a Jesus era man, you know, like mm-hmm. five five, right? And and they're all washing it down and they're putting these crosses on there, and I guess the cross soaks up the power of the rock, and oh. so I was like, yeah, Steve would love that. Uh, but I'm like, where am I going to get a cross? And he goes, oh, dude. Well, luckily, you ain't the only one to think of this. <laughs> so you go outside, and there's your bunch of, of cross salesmen. Uh, and some of them have a piece of, like, holy uh, uh, dirt from, from Jerusalem. Others have, like, um, uh, incense in there uh, through, like, a little glass. Some are just plain, real plain uh, wood. Others are more ornate. And you just – and it's like – Bought one. I took, put it back on the rock, and took a picture of it on the rock for Steve, and he loved it. But like, yeah, that's what you do. There's, there's a whole market of people selling crosses to people who want to put a cross on the rock. Yeah, well, as I said in the book, that you can sort of trace the souvenir industry to that pilgrimage, right? You know, there's just so much stuff that the Christians really obsessed with finding every little detail from the life of Christ, and they talk about the true Christ or the true cross. I think Mark Twain made a joke that, you know. Um, there's enough wood in Europe to make a whole forest of true crosses because everybody brought back what they thought was the true cross. But uh, apparently Helena's test for the the true cross was you put a dead person on it, and if they come to life, it's the true cross. And that's how she figured out what the true cross was. I mean, there's just all these crazy stories that are sort of this, sort of like this video game energy to how they determine what is, what is and isn't holy in there. Um, You were talking about the, those little, incense decanters that they're walking around with was the church split up between different christian sects when you were there not i i couldn't tell you actually i i I wouldn't know uh it was it was some like people who worked there for sure and they also what i noticed is they did not care for the tourists Hmm. Hmm. um i'm sure that's how they got their money to survive and pay their pay their wages but like when they had to do the They'd swing the chain. It almost looked like an old style mace, but like right, an incense right. holder in it. You know, the size of a of a fist or like 
or like a coffee grinder. And, um, and they'd swing it back and forth. And people are like crowded around the tomb and they're coming in from behind you. So you're looking at the tomb and these guys are trying to do their hourly, like, you know, like uh, old faithful swinging of the, of the incense holder. Yeah. And people are in the way. And the priests or whatever the fuck they were would just kind of like hit people with it. I could see them like swinging out, like really <laughs> say like, get the fuck out of the way. I'm doing my job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you gawking tourist. Um, that I found really wonderful. And if anybody gets a chance to go there, just step out of the way and just just look at how <laughs> pushy those guys are and how much they hate the visitors. Well, and I'm, I'm sure that they've been sick of that scene for hundreds of years because that the, the yeah. church is a whole, whole. Another thing that Mark Twain says, you, you'd think that Jesus was crucified in a Catholic church because there's this giant church built over where he was supposedly crucified. Um, and oh, what, yeah. What I saw when I was there, I don't. I assume it's still the same way, is that over time, different Christian sects have claimed different parts of the churches. They, they can't just agree to, to run it together. So the Orthodox guys have this part of the church, and the Catholics have this part, and the Coptics have this part. And when I was there, you went up into sort of the attic, and the Ethiopian Christians are up there. You know, like, this, there's wow. sort of this chill Ethiopian vibe in this certain part of the church. And it, it was so weird so- that... You would think that Christians like a reggae bar downstairs. <laughs> exactly, it almost felt like that. You know that there's there's just grumpy priests everywhere, and they they sort of hate each other. And apparently, there's been fistfights, and they had to give like the key to the church is held by a Muslim because the Christians couldn't agree who would lock the church up at the end of the day. <laughs> um, and and you if you research this, I think you can find that there's been like full on brawls between the Christian sects, like five way sharks versus jets fistfights in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Which is crazy to think about. What, what? Wow. Because yeah, also, it's just, it's not that, that this is a fight. It's, it's a fight from people who pr- proselytize, turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor. Yeah. When it's like the hypocrisy, it's so much more fun than when it's just like, you know, two Red Sox fans fighting is no big deal. Well, it really is. It's like, it's like Red Sox and Raiders and Islanders. And you just think of the worst fandoms in, in sports all in one church in Jerusalem. Um, being very territorial about where they where they are, and it, and it's funny how I don't know if there's a, a corollary in in Jewish teaching, but you know Jesus taught a lot of gentle love your neighbor type stuff, but like the evangelicals when I was there were really into the end times. They liked the ass kicker Jesus parts from the end of the Bible. They weren't really interested in loving their neighbor. They were they were worried about what would happen when people were raptured into heaven. And then you have these five or six different Christian sects very territorially looking over their church. What, what, do, what do Jewish sects fight over? Um, yeah. I don't, I mean, or maybe they don't. Maybe, they, maybe they, Jews they really get along. They don't. They're just like, they want nothing to do with each other. So they're just like, yeah, you do your thing. We'll do ours. And also, like, they're all trying. So, like, if you go to the Western Wall and they see you're a Jew, they just they have this idea that, like, the whole nation coming together will bring the Messiah. So any Jew that does any mitzvah, any uh, good deed, is just like one good deed on the tally of all Jews. So like we all benefit from that. That's why I'll try to get you to like light a Hanukkah menorah in New York or, or shake a lulav and esrog on, on Sukkot. Um, right. Or, you know, just say a prayer real quick. They just want you to do it because it's like it just brings them like, you know, 10 seconds closer to coming. Um, right. So really, yeah, I don't think they're fighting over anything. It's just I, like I, there's just different services going on. You could have a conservative service at the Western Wall right next to an Orthodox service. They'll just be like, yeah, enjoy your space. 
I get the sense that that um, Judaism is more of a conversation. I'm, I'm no theologian, but it feels like Jews are sort of always arguing about what exactly they believe in, whereas Christians, when they have an argument, they form a new church, you know? So there's... <laughs> well, Jews do that too. There's an old story where it's like um, these two men got lost at sea and they landed on a desert island and they were lost for, you know, a year and then a, a ship found them. And they, they docked, and they saw one of the, the Jews, and it was like, oh, my God, we found you. You've been lost for so long. Um, is, is your buddy, you know, Tom, whatever, is he still alive? He goes, yeah, he's at the other synagogue. <laughs> so so there is a little bit of a corollary. If you, it, Disagreements yeah, yeah, yeah. create new new synagogues. Yeah, exactly. But they don't hate each other. They're just like, like when I grew up, we had, the, we had one synagogue, and then as the community started spreading, it became longer and longer to walk there on Saturday. It became like a 30-minute walk. So people were like, let's just build one here. And then the big difference was the original synagogue was, they called it the talking shul. And this uh -huh. one was the quiet shul because we huh. didn't talk in services. And the huh. old rabbi got so pissed about that when he found out. That's what people were saying. Yeah. He like that's... screamed at his flock. He was like, I'm, we're the talking synagogue? That's right. my legacy? So angry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Those poor guys. Yeah. Amidst all this madness, like the earnest people get it the worst. You know, the people who are the, 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 the gentle, true believers a bit all the Jerusalem sin syndrome madmen. I'm curious. Um, have you ever I read an article in The New Yorker years ago about how comedians in New York for certain comedy clubs, when they're starting out, they have to canvas in Times Square. Are you familiar with this? Oh, Bark. Yeah. The Barkers. Have yeah, you done um, this? I did not. I didn't start in New York. I started in Los Angeles. Okay. But uh, Pete Holmes uh, did that. Uh, Burt Kreischer says he was the first one to do it. I, I have no idea. Hmm. I like to exaggerate. But like, um, yeah, that's just a standard way in. Like, we'll trade you. There was a version of it in LA. But they're like, you go hand out flyers. Say, hey, come to New York Comedy Club. Hey, come to Stand Up New York. Hey, come to Gotham. And then uh, you can get like, you know, five minutes on a, on a, on a Monday hmm. uh, on stage. The version of that in L.A. was if you worked at the comedy store, if you did three shifts during the week, you could get three minutes on Sunday. Okay. Yeah, I mean, not really worth it, but it was a real crowd, so it was pretty cool. Well, there was a New Yorker uh, article about this that made it sound sort of interesting but also humiliating. You know, that people were just oh, so yeah. rude to the comedy touts. Um, yeah, it's also, it's just like you're bothering people. Yeah. It's so awful. I did it once in San Francisco to try to get people to come to a show I had. Um, me and my friends were doing a, a comedy tour up the coast, and we got to, we just needed to get audience members there. So we went to the Fisherman's Wharf, and and uh, start, I, I told the other guys, I'm like, guys, I, I'll just be off the tour. I can't do this. I, emotionally, I just can't have hmm. people walking by me, looking at me like like I'm an asshole, which yeah. I am. It's like I'm bothering strangers. Yeah, it's weird. I actually, um, the reason I thought of it is that I, I put that New Yorker story in my file notes for Israel because it reminded me, like I decided to do one act of self-abnegation in Jerusalem. And I was a tout for the, a bar called the Blue Hole Pub. And so I, I walked, it was around Zion Square. And so I, I walked around handing out flyers for happy hour, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. in the Blue Hole Pub in exchange for like a few shekels and some free drinks. And it was so humiliating that, that basically, I, I think I've been that tourist before, like the person who just ignores the person holding out a flyer. Um, but my own sense of pride is like, you know, fuck you, Norwegian tourist. Why take my flyer, just take it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. The whole Edinburgh uh, Comedy Festival is built on flyers. And that's hmm. another like industry that's built up around an industry. 
so it's 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 fifteen hundred comedians are there performing for the whole month, and um, you gotta get people to come to your shows. The city doubles in size during that time, and um, but there's so many shows to choose from. So you gotta like people are just like walking, like wanna go see a show in five minutes, and they're like, yeah, okay. But so I'll, I'll, half the festival flyers for themselves. They they can't huh. afford it, and then the other half just like pays a flyer team to do it. But right. Uh, I have talked to the flyers. I'm like, what What do you want? Like, what do you like? They're like, just take the flyer. If I had right? to tell yes. anybody one thing, just take it. I don't yes. give a shit if you're going to the show. Just, I'm a human being. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I, I, I went through this, I don't know if it was a crisis of faith, but it was so humiliating to yeah. just be this, oh, to be this asshole that people ignored. And I realized that my strategy for, for not being completely humiliated was to be very super charming. Um, and so, like, I was the fun guy handing out the the, the flyers. Um, and actually, um, the guy who owned the Blue Heart Ball Bar really liked me. Like, he 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 asked me back for another couple nights because I was the chatty guy who thought, well, okay, if this guy's nice, maybe I'll go and have a, a drink at the Blue Hole Pub. So it was just this weird footnote that sort of has a comedy corollary. That basically, to keep my sense of pride, I had to just become good at handing out flyers as opposed to, you know, being constantly hilarious. ignored. Yeah. Yeah, your chattiness probably helped you the most. Those were always the best flyers. Who were just like, "Hey, where are you from?" I just want actually just want to talk. I'm I'm not interested in selling you. Um, like I'll yeah. give you the flyer, but I do want to find out where this guy's from. <laughs> it's like, those but but guys they always killed it. They do want you to give away all the flyers. You know, that's sort of your your progress. Yes. That you know you'll you'll get your two free beers and your twenty shekels if you give away this stack of flyers and they don't find them in the garbage can around the corner from Zion Square. So, uh-huh. <laughs> my friend Jim Painter had a thing. He had a job uh, early in L.A. Uh, handing out like single wrapped pieces of gum for a new new Trident or whatever. Okay, um, you know to to tourists like, hey, try this new flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, just one piece. Um, and at some point he got a job at working the phones at the comedy store alongside me and he was just like hey you guys want a giant bag of gum and it was like this sack <laughs> this like duffel bag sack we're like sure so we just had gum all the time he would also go to the movie theater to lowe's where another bunch of comics worked and he goes i'll give you guys a lifetime supply of gum if you just let me watch free movies this week <laughs> and they're like sure okay <laughs> and whoever's paying it was not getting their money's worth right right well it's yeah i think it's it's sort of a sketchy Enterprise, you know, that whole, you know, everybody has their own strategy. There's probably an online version of it now. Um, but just being the asshole, shoving flyers in front of people's faces in Zion Square, that was me for a few nights. Um, and, <laughs> That's and, hilarious. I would have loved to see that long-haired Rolf. That punk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, And then because it was my pilgrimage, I decided that, that was there was some self-abnegation there, but I wanted to end on some sort of spiritual note, so I went to Jericho. Did you go to Jericho in the West Bank? No, we were not allowed to go to the West Bank. You weren't allowed Even to go? Even though we were Americans and we were sort of protected, it was like they just instilled in us a fear of of uh, the Jewish-Israeli conflict, Jewish-Palestinian okay. conflict. So Is this I would have loved to, but I did not get a chance to go. The most recent trip or the first trip or both? Most recent trip. No, no, the first trip. This, okay. this one okay. I would have gone for sure. I mean, I ended mm-hmm. up going to, to, to Jordan. Um, um, but like... Yeah, I just didn't have time this trip. We were, just, we were just there for like five days. Yeah. Um, it's cool. It's worth How going it? to. It, well, it's um, it's amazing. It's it, like it's a little Arab. Jericho is a little Arab town, and Arab towns are oh, always right very next friendly. to Tel Aviv. No, no, no. Uh, it's on the Jordan River. It's on the other side. It's uh, across the I'm Jordan River. Yafo. Yafo. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, okay. which actually is a cool little area. Very artsy, yeah. Yaffa is. Yeah. Um, Jericho is sort of a crapshoot. Like there was a casino there and there was a Palestinian refugee camp there. Um, and it was just like, it, it just, it's sort of disorganized but friendly. Uh, and the Mount of the Temptation is above Jericho. So in the Bible says that Jesus was tempted by Satan. Um, mm-hmm. So like, just renounce your Messiahhood and I'll give you this, right? Um, well, of course, the Christians found the place where they think it actually happened, and there's a monastery there. And so I wanted to stay in the monastery, um, and I went and I talked to the monks. It was the first time that I really interacted with Christian monks. Um, yeah. And there's and there's a saying in the Christian tradition, like the monks are supposed to give hospitality. In fact, some of the earliest travel writing is Christian pilgrims going and interacting with these monks in the Holy Land. Um, but one of the monks are taught that you're supposed to see every visitor as if he was Jesus, but the visitors get really annoying really fast. And so there's like, oh, Jesus, is that you again? That basically monks don't like hosting visitors. Um, and that was true with me. So I went up to Mount of the Temptation. It's like, oh, yeah, can I stay here? And they're like, yeah, every Christian person wants to come up and stay here. And it made me realize how in the 21st century, like it's just not the – sort of your your handsome, charming people probably aren't going to be monks, you know? Like, it, um, yeah. I think I think they're Greek Orthodox monks, but they're, li- they're like the guys who would have collected Star Wars dolls and had no friends in high school. Like, they're the ones... <laughs> they found who, something to succeed in. Right, they're, they're the ones running the monastery. And they're sort of bullies about it. Like, they're like, yeah, there's no way. Because there are like some empty cells there. I, I was trying to talk them into letting me sleep there, like the monks. And it's like, yeah, we're, you this stinky backpacker is not going to be sleeping with us. But he said, but the Do old monastery. Do you even monast- love Jesus, bro? Right, right. It, it was so weird. And, it, and like, that was the best corollary I had. These are the guys who would have had no friends, but now they're monks. And so they can bully people around. They can bully pilgrims. But the cool thing is they said, yeah, there's an old monastery that we abandoned like 60 years ago. And you're responsible for yourself. But if you want to stay there, you can't. So I hiked halfway down the Mount of the Temptation. And there's like this old monastery that was abandoned in the 1940s. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It was like the closest I came to a truly spiritual experience on the hike because I had it to myself. Um, it was full of like bat shit and sheep shit. And there were these old, um, frescoes that were painted on the wall, but the Arabs, like Arab Muslims believe the grave of an image is a blas- blasphemy. I think in Judaism, it doesn't really believe in, uh, grave images either, but the, um, the Arab shepherds had what's had a graven Im- what's a graven image? Well, it's like a painting or a sculpture. It's basically you're drawing a picture of a human, and that's insulting God because God invented humans and He did a better job than your your oh. pansy ass painting yeah, or sculpture of a human. Um, I thought that was a Jewish thing too, but it's definitely nah. a Muslim. Like Muslim art is very abstract because Muslims don't believe in. I mean, it's why. You know, there's all this fuss over an, drawing an image of Muhammad because it's supposed to be, you know, Muhammad is a right. sacred person. And yeah, if you draw him, then it's it's a diminished version. So it was weird to be in this old monastery where the, the Muslim shepherds had scratched out the faces of all the Christian saints, including Jesus, not because they hated Christianity, but because Jesus is a saint in their own tradition. And it was insulting to have a picture of the supposed Jesus. And so I'm in this super creepy old monastery. Um, and I decided to fast there. So I stopped eating for a couple of days and I slept really? in this monastery. Yeah. Um, and I had all these candles and there was no electricity there. And so when I lit the candles at night, I realized that 
the walls had been painted over and the, the, the older frescoes had been etched into the walls. And so when the candles were lit, and you could like see the old frescoes in 3D. It was, it was a really singular experience. Like I was by myself the whole time. And um, uh, have you ever fasted before? Oh, yeah. Yom Kippur. We have oh, six yeah, or okay. fast days every year. Yeah. How, yeah. how long do you fast and do you do it alone or with other people? Um, it, in On Yom Kippur, it's, you just do it 20, about 25 hours. Okay. Um, okay. From sundown to sundown the next day. Uh, other days are just like morning to night. Uh-huh. Um, you don't do it alone. It's not like you have to go to a place and not eat. But, yeah, it's just like you just don't eat. But go about your day, whatever it is. And so you interact with people. Yeah, for sure. You did not. You just fasted and didn't see anyone. Yeah, I, I think in the Christian tradition, cool. fasting is a little bit more of a solitary thing. It's it's sort of like the, the mystics would wander the desert and fast by themselves to become closer to God. Um, mm-hmm. and, but it's hard. Like, I have pretty high metabolism. And so fasting is not easy. Uh, and but so, so then I was alone and and sort of being super hungry in this crazy old monastery that was scratched out of a cave um, with the faces scratched off the saints and the Mary and the Jesus. Uh, and it was just it was just really a singular experience. Um, and I don't know if it was spiritual per se, but like I was a little bit sick, like I was a little, like a little bit diarrhea sick. I wasn't eating very much. And there's something about being sick that sort of forces you to be where you are. You're sort of forced to be in the moment. Um, and it had a beautiful view out over the the Jordan Valley and the Judean Desert. Um, and so I think that's as close as it came to spiritual for me, that I had this weird moment of being semi-sick and completely alone and completely hungry. Um, are, is temptation a part of the Jewish tradition, the idea of being tempted? Um, by think. Because I know I in the... Well, in the in the Buddhist tradition, like um, I think when Buddha was on the mountain, he was tempted by young vixens. Um, yeah, he was tempted by by by, um, by uh, women, uh, food, and money. Yeah, with Buddha's three, like and and, and women were, was the biggest one. Right. Yeah. That was where he was like, I think I'm just gonna actually screw all this and and forget this religion thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. And, and so I remember being in this cave, coming off that Tel Aviv experience, which was like going through puberty again. And sort of vaguely wishing that I ha- was tempted, you know, just thinking maybe only the real saint, the saints are tempted because if a woman came in right now, there's there'd be no way that I could uh, withstand this temptation. Yeah, you'd just be like, oh, sweet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no, and so, it's a waste of a temptation on you. They're like, he's not even getting anywhere. Right. It's like the, this dude is not a saint. He's just like a stinky guy sleeping in a cave. There's no way we're going to send, you know, virtuous maidens his way. Um, Isn't it weird that just that the, the mentality to be like, I want to just for a minute, like grab some of the spirituality from a, from a religion that's been there. So you get this, this whole like sect of people who do that while traveling mm. and they don't even they don't even have ties to the specific religion. Now, some people do. Some people are like, like you said, those like pilgrims that are Christian, but some are just like when they're in Thailand, maybe they'll go to a Buddhist retreat. And then, mm. you know, a month later they're in Israel and they'll go to the, the, the Western Wall and they'll feel so spiritual there. And then they'll be in Egypt and they'll be connected to the, to the ancient mummies or the ancient, like, gods yeah. of Egypt. And it's just like, it's almost like they're just, like, lacking something and just they just glom on for a minute and play pretend. Yeah, that, that, I should write about that. It's almost like buffet-style spirituality um, that, mm-hmm. that travels, yeah. travelers really embrace it. And, and I think 
there's a lot of what the hellness to it. Like, oh well, okay, so I'm in I'm in India and I'll go to a, a Hindu festival, or I'm in you know Thailand and so I'm going to do a ten day meditation retreat with a Buddhist in the Buddhist tradition. You know, guilty. Um, did you do that? Did you um, do a meditation? Retreat? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there was all these people who felt like I was just trying to get the meditation down, but I'm sure some of it was like, I think I'm spiritual now. <laughs> some people were way in. But um, yeah. but um, yeah, the Vipassana silent retreat. But like, um, yeah, it, it's a strange. It is a strange part of of traveling. Those people who just like glom. I don't know. Well, well that includes exactly that included me in Israel. I think I wrote in my journal. It was sort of recreational spirituality. It was it was just sort of like a stunt version of a Christian pilgrimage. Um, right. That for me, it was more interesting to walk across Israel than to take a bus and go to the sites. And, it, and it's true that it was it was cooler, even though I was the world's most mediocre Christian pilgrim, um, and that it wasn't this fervent thing for me. It was way more interesting to subject myself to walking from place to place um, than to just take the tour bus and get a ticket. Yeah, I mean, sort of. If you just believe in like there are spiritual things the way like the new agey people kind of think, then you almost sort of respect all religions as having like special powers. Mm. Um, like whose God is more, is more powerful, but they right. both have power, you right. know? Um, yeah. So you can glom onto anything. And some of it too, is just an interest in other cultures. Um, like that meditation retreat was like embarrassing for myself <laughs> to, to be like, I think I'm feeling something, but like, uh, but then I, I was randomly at a mosque and they were like, come pray with us. And I was like, okay. Huh. Um, in I forget where Vietnam somewhere and um, a mosque and then they're like yes southern Vietnam there's a small Muslim community in like outside Chodok across the the Mekong Um, Uh yeah I was surprised too but you know I would go to my knees and do what they were doing just out of respect but there was no part of me that was like I'm feeling something it was just like interesting that's all Just, just like a tomato festival would be interesting yeah I met a backpacker in Egypt once this this sort of nerdy kid from Massachusetts who some Muslims took him to a mosque and then asked him if he wanted to convert and he was like too polite to say no. <laughs> so he went through <laughs> so the conversion. Just... <laughs> he literally con- he converted to Islam in a very low nutri- nutrient way um, just because he was too nice not to, to, to say no thank you. Um, and, and so I wonder how well, often works. that happens. Get into heaven. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, w- your, your meditation retreat, where in Thailand was that? That was um, in northern Thailand. About about there's a um, what's it? Chiang Mai is a northern city, and then left north west of that is a city called Pai. Oh yeah, it's like a yeah okay. It's like a, hippie. a hipster town. Yeah, it's like California. Yeah, and Thailand. it really is. Yeah, yeah, you can get like falafel there, and like it's really like not Thailand at all. Yeah. Um, Kind of like the full moon parties. It's just like it happens to be in Thailand, but it's got nothing to do with Thailand. Um, and then about an hour north of that is a the Cave Lodge, um, just like a really cool place discovered by this Australian guy. And then further north of that is this uh, Watamua. It's the forest monastery. Hmm. And you can just go there, and if you, if you do 10 days, they'll let you – They'll let you have a nice bunk, and if you don't, they put put you on a yoga mat on the floor, and it fucking sucks. Is it mostly tourists there? Yeah, it's all white. I was trying to find – so somebody told me about it while I was at the cave lodge. Somebody told me 
about this idea, this Vipassana meditation. And I was like interested, but, but the Watam world place was like, it really was for whites. Right. And so like, I was like, man, less interesting. So I, I went around where the cave lodge was. There was a guy who spoke Thai there, uh, uh, another Australian guy. And he was like, let's see if we can get you into one. Cause I guess you just, you're just supposed to show up at a, at a monastery and just go Vipassana. And then they'll just be like, okay, we're just going to feed you and you do meditation and fucking sit here all day. Huh. Um, but the one I went to was under construction and he was like, through the translator was like, he's not going to enjoy this. Uh, this is going to be loud noise all the time. Hmm. Hmm. So then eventually I was like, ah, fuck it. I'll go to the tourist one. Oh, well, that's a thing. And I think much like, you know, a tourist industry has, has sprung up in Jerusalem around like the way of the cross or other the church of the Holy Sepulchral cross business. It happened in Thailand too, because when I was writing vagabonding in Southern Thailand, there was a meditation retreat that became popular with backpackers in like Suratani or someplace that was not too far from where I was. And I ran into a lot of backpackers going on a visa run who'd been there. And I think a lot of people think they want to do a 10-day meditation retreat when in fact that's hard work and it's hard to be still for 10 days. And so what the monks figured out is so many backpackers wanted to take photos that the monks just decided that there, that a photo session would be a part of it, just to avoid having... Wow. So basically, backpackers... This is before the smartphone era, so this is the film camera era, that so many backpackers, they sort of wanted to do the, the meditation retreat, but they also wanted pictures of themselves with monks at the uh, meditation retreat, right? And so the monks are finally like, stop taking pictures... We'll take a picture when it's done. <laughs> and so, so it's, it's funny how this may have been a transformational thing in North Thailand, too, that maybe all, the, all these meditation retreats were for Thai people, but it was so popular with the backpackers that they had sort of a meditation light type retreat. Yeah, it seems spiritual. Yeah. Uh, my 10-day retreat uh, stopped at five days when the two girls I thought were cute were leaving. You you had spiritual spiritual compromises based on cute girls in your own uh, journey too. It was um it was actually like like um so I was trying to get into it and then they had they had an option of being silent or not and you they had these little placards you could put on your your, your um, chest pocket or just mm-hmm. like your collar and it said um, I'm being silent you know don't talk to me okay much in okay. a nice way um so I had mine on and then I met one of those girls that were in the gap here she, she was just there. Mm-hmm. Um, I met them. I met her in Myanmar, and this was in Northern Thailand. It was just like a. And then she was like, "Are you?" I was like, "Ah!" Oh. And she like looked at my badge, and she was like, "Are you really doing this silently?" And I was like, "Yeah, whatever." I just took it off. Like, Let's <laughs> talk. And, you know, I haven't seen you in two weeks. Um, but then there were all these like bad, bad girls. So everybody's like way into spirituality, and some people like really succeeded at it, and they were like almost like priests of their own, hmm. um, teaching the, the they they they're a six day resident, so they're teaching the new people. They could act like they're big shots. Right. Um, yeah. And they were annoying. I saw how I could sort of see through it. And my, you know, my antagonist, not antagonistic, my um, contrarian self was like, fuck them. Um, but then there was a little canteen where you could go to and you could get like snack food if you had to. It was far away. And I went there. And some girls were smoking. And, and it was like, what? Who are you guys? And they were making fun of the whole thing because hmm. we had to wear white. They were mm-hmm. all white. They were making fun of it. And I was like, yeah, this is retarded. This is like ridiculous, <laughs> this whole thing. And it was just like, and then I was just smitten with this girl. Um, and then I just followed her. 
It was, it was, yeah, it was so great. You, we made you, out. We kissed once, and that was it. You had the temptation, Ari. Here, I was wishing to be tempted yeah. by maidens in the cave in Jericho, and, <laughs> and and you actually had it. You and and you you gave in as quickly as I would have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, there was no temptation needed. They actually talk about that in Judaism. When you when you die, you meet your um, Yetzer Hara, your um, your um, evil inclination. It, huh. it takes on a, a form. And um, these great rabbis, uh, these great tzaddiks, these, these um, saints, pretty much, for Jews, they meet their Yetzirahara, and it's this massive monster, a two-story tall monster that's been hmm. trying to get them to sin their entire lives, and they were unable to. And then they, they meet this, this, this monster, and they're like, wow, I was able to overcome that. It's amazing. And then the, the, the thieves and the bandits, they meet their uh, evil inclination, and it's this little tiny, like, the size of a mouse. <laughs> Right, and all it do is right. like steal that. I'm like, all right, I'll steal it. <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> and that's you and me in our pilgrimages. There's like right. any temptation. Like, sure, whatever. It, it was the size of a chihuahua at best, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're fasting like one one M M&M. and M. Like, okay. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's recreational spirituality right there. Um, and I think yeah. that's probably the the rule rather than the exception. Most backpackers don't really, you know, even if they stay for ten days. You know, they've only scratched the surface almost by definition, you know. Yeah. Yeah. My 10 days ended at five. And then I would see some of those guys who were very spiritual there and like doing the extra work. Yeah. Um, I I saw them, you know, a week later in Chiang Mai um, getting obliterated and then going to do coke in the bathroom. And it's right. like, oh, <laughs> like that was just you were just putting on a shirt. That happened to me my first vagabonding trip. I stayed at a monastery in Massachusetts, and it was amazing. It was really amazing. But then I read my journal, like, two days later, I was doing Jaeger shots or something, you know, that that, that, yeah. that it actually affected me. It really it really affected me in a way, but it didn't stop me from being, you know, the, the total meathead 23-year-old that I was. So yeah. it's funny how, yeah. um, like in Southeast Asia, this is sort of an aside, but when I was in that town riding vagabonding, I'd get these sort of backpacker pseudo-Buddhist come through. And the, the guy that ran the little desk downstairs in the hotel was a, um, a Karen Christian from, from Myanmar. Um, and they didn't really like him very much, you know, because in, in the America, Christians are sort of the overbearing bully religion. Um, and he's here, oh, yeah, you know, he would talk about Christianity, and, and they're, they're here, well, Buddhist, Buddhism is more peaceful than Christianity. He's here, like, no, actually, the Buddhist junta killed my uncle and, my, and his kids. And it just sort of blew their like. I think there's this idea, there's this Judeo-Christian approach to Buddhism that's very full of itself, uh, and they forget that people are people. You know that they may they might find their epiphany, yeah. but they forget that actually Buddhists are can be shitheads too. Um, yeah, in Myanmar they had the Nazi Buddha, um, who's like did they? very into one of the higher ups. Just this one guy, and he's very into like exterminating the Rohingya. And you're oh like, Aren't yeah, you supposed yeah. to not step on a on a spider. Yeah, you're supposed to like let the spider out of your. And it's like doesn't really go with the teaching. Well, well, that made headlines. I mean, back when I was doing this, before that happened, there's this idea that you know things were perfect in in Myanmar um, because they were so Buddhist there. But yeah, people are people, and there's there's political reasons why they're wiping out the Rohingya, and there's some nasty people doing nasty things under the umbrella of Buddhism, like there's nasty people doing things under the umbrella of Christianity. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Christianity is such a well-documented um, history of 
being not very Christian in the name of Christianity, that is um, yeah. much more so than Buddhism, I think. Um, in the interest of coming full circle and letting you get on with your day, Ari, um, I'm curious to know, just based on what we've been talking about just now, does travel have a spiritual component for you? And is it Jewish or is it something else? And Yeah, dude, like, as, as we were just talking about this, and I, I was thinking about it, like as we just brought that up, that 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 trying on a, a spiritual coat kind of idea, that that I I hadn't like put a put a you know a definition on or a thumb on until right when I was saying it right now with you. Hmm. Um, I'm thinking that the travel itself is the spirituality, hmm. um, and the way people talk about it to to non travelers or to other travelers when you're sitting on a on a rooftop bar in Yangon, like where have you been? Where have you been? It really is seemingly sort of a, a religion in itself, and you brag about all the all the great parts of your religion, and that's almost the real religion. Hmm. And then when you go and and like you know go to a a, a, a vipassana meditation retreat at a Buddhist monastery, or go or go to a, a mosque, or go to you know a, a walk from Galilee to to Jerusalem, that's almost like part of the the overall religion, which is travel. Yeah, you know, and seeing new cultures and religions is part of some of those cultures. It's like I'm just sort of just having this in my mind right now, congeal, like like right now as I'm saying it with you. I haven't thought of it like that before. Well, and me as you were talking, I wrote down on my notes here, chicken and egg. So, do you think pilgrimage, which is which sort of you know modern tourism comes out of pilgrimage, probably? So, does pilgrimage honor an existing religion? Or is it a way of exercising the spiritual self that is already in you? Yeah. Well, it's like, I, I think there's a vagabonding where it's like, why are you drawn to certain countries or certain places to go? Who, like, who cares? Just you are. So just go. Right. Um, so I wonder if like Helena, is that what you said it was? St. Helena, um, yeah. Saint, yeah. It's like, was she just already a traveler? So following in the footsteps of Jesus, was her excuse to go do it there? Hmm. Uh, you know, or was she like, no, no, I'm all in on Jesus, so I have to go there to find Jesus. Maybe she was just a, a backpacker, <laughs> just like <laughs> needing an excuse. And she goes, you know, or like and all those 23 and me people are like, I'm one thirtieth I'm Irish. I, I guess I'll go to Ireland. You know, yeah. I wonder who is that or. Well, I, I love this as a concept because actually there's some religious rituals that are easier to find in travel than maybe in religion, just like self-abnegation, the, the idea of suffering and being, you know, hungry or, or lost or whatever. I think that there's some difficulties of travel that sort of force you maybe into a, a deeper version of yourself in a way that sort of smartphone app religion yeah. doesn't. You find yourself in some way. The same yeah. way you find yourself when they're like, you're lost, come find, come to church with me and you'll be found. Yeah. Um, yeah, if like you're lost... I mean, Tim Ferriss and shit like that, where he's like, you know, at this dumb job, succeeding, and then he goes and lives in Argentina, and he's like, you know, you find yourself on your spiritual, you know, your, 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 your walkabouts. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. A reminder, if you enjoy my podcast from week to week, to share your favorite episodes with friends who might be interested and to spread the word by leaving a friendly rating or review at whichever podcasting service you use to listen to Deviate. More about everything that was just mentioned in this episode, including my holiday book giveaway, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Thank you.